So hello and welcome to another episode of Drill to Detail. And I'm delighted to be joined again by one of the first guests we had on the show back in September last year, Dan McClary from Google. So Dan, it's great to have you back on the show. And why don't you introduce yourself to anyone who's missed the episode back last year? Sure, Mark, thanks for having me. And, and gosh, it's hard to think it's been all the way since September since, since mm-hmm. we've done this, but I'm glad to be back. Um, for folks who don't know who I am, um, I'm one of those people who has sort of bounced around the large-scale data processing database industry for a while. I was at Oracle for many years, um, and I've been at Google for, for the last little while. Um, I work specifically on uh, BigQuery, um, which is part of Google Cloud Platform, and then the internal system, which both backs it and serves Google itself, called Dremel. Fantastic. Well, Dan, I mean, obviously what's been interesting for me and one of the things that prompted me having you back on the show is I've been using BigQuery myself a lot now in my life, my current job. And uh, it's we, we speak we spoke earlier on about how it's interesting to maybe kind of replay back to you some of the things that I've been finding with it and whether those interpretations are correct or whatever, but also to kind of go back on some of the topics we talked about and have a bit more of an informed discussion around it, really. So it's good to have you on here and, and, and thanks very much for, for doing this. But just for some kind of background, really, I mean, the Google Cloud Platform that you're working on and Google BigQuery, um, I've noticed it being very popular within some of the kind of startup world I've been working in, particularly kind of marketing tech and financial tech and so on. You know, just tell us what, do you, what are these products and why are they particularly popular with this kind of market that I'm seeing at the moment? So I, you know, Mark, if I were to, if I were to try and, and take a macro view of it, I think one of the things that, that GCP, uh, you know, excels at relative to other cloud providers is, you know, when we provide managed service um, to users, it is it is truly managed, and it is it is in most cases serverless. And this ranges from systems like BigQuery, in which you get uh, a massively powerful enterprise data warehouse, in which you have to manage zero infrastructure, to systems like Data Store and App Engine, where you can scale up what you need to run an application. Um, without having to make any any sort of server management decisions. Um, you don't even deal with the notion of servers. You simply write your application and you go, or you write your query and you go. Um, now, historically, there, I think one of the reasons Google excels at this is our own internal experience. Google has been building cloud infrastructure for itself for a very long time. And, and one of the things I think that has been apparent to us internally is that more people can be more productive, whether that is analyzing data or building applications or, or serving users, um, if they have, if they can offload much of the responsibility of maintaining infrastructure and then even ma- maintaining services themselves. And it, it's how we have composed the, the underpinnings of Google itself. And in most cases, we are passing that on to Google Cloud Platform customers. Mm. I mean, this, this, this. I suppose this abstraction of the infrastructure and the fact that the infrastructure takes care of itself, or certainly you guys take care of it for customers. That's something that coming from the on-premise world, I kind of didn't really kind of get the significance of that really. And I think it's. You know, working in the startup world and seeing how they've been through iterations of this kind of big data technology over the years and to the point where even though Hadoop technology is, is very kind of, you know, fault tolerant and so on and so forth, the actual kind of effort involved in maintaining that becomes uh, over, over, overwhelming in the end. And this kind of, this ability to kind of take away that complication, everything just auto scales. It's massively important for these businesses that run at this scale and have to be there all the time. And, and if you if you think about particularly you know startups or or companies that are focused on tasks tasks beyond we are technology, um, the you know you you have you have a, you have some limited runway and you have a problem to solve or a number of problems to solve which are domain specific and to to then divide your precious time between that and sort of caring for infrastructure as if it was 
you know, as if it was a collection of pets is, is maybe not the most effective way to reach your goals. And, and again, I mean, I think that replicates a lot of what we've found internally, which is that if you're, if you're trying to solve a problem, you probably don't need to go and build and maintain a storage system to go and solve a problem in advertising, in email, in, you know, document editing, like you should solve the problem. And, and I think it's, I think it's really heartening that we see so many startups and so many, so many organizations that are focused on their domain problems embrace Google Cloud Platform as a, as a better way to focus on their mission. Mm, exactly. And I think the other thing that's been interesting, I found working with BigQuery and, that, and your platform in the last kind of six months is, I remember the days of Oracle when I was working mostly with that. And one of the ways that it kind of built up its developer following was that you could go and download all the software from their website for, uh, on a developer license. And effectively, you could play around with the entire stack on your kind of desktop, on your PC and learn Oracle in those days. And that's what I've been finding is the case with, with BigQuery and Google Cloud Platform because of the kind of very generous kind of developer and trial limits you've got. I've, I think I've, I think I must have paid about fifty pounds in about sort of six months in terms of you know usage of this at home. But I've been able to teach myself BigQuery and PubSub and so on using that, and that's a very kind of enlightened attitude I think you guys have got. Well, and I think ultimately we you know free trials matter to us, and we want to make sure that anybody can access these things. And, and you know, speaking personally, I think you know we want to see more people analyzing data, whether it's in their personal lives or as hobbyists or as part of their business, and. And, you know, when we when we speak to another organization or you speak to a large organization, a small organization, obviously, you know, people understand that they're paying for service. However, we want to reach anyone who has an interest in analyzing data, which means we have to lower the cost of entry as well. And much the same way, you know, back in the back in the old days, you you, you could download the Oracle developer license set and play around with it and make a little database and, and do things. We want to inspire that same that same level of play and explore but in a way in which you can do it from a tablet, you can you you, you can do it and, and feel no burden that oh I'm going to get a charge and it's going to disincentivize my learning. Exactly, exactly. So let, let's kind of get into some of the detail now. So you're, you you look after or you or you work with BigQuery and BigQuery is a is a is a technology again was a was a big surprise to be really coming from the more I suppose the relational world and the big data world. Very different technologies there, but then BigQuery. Is, you know, it's based on Dremel, I'll go in a second. It's, it's, it's a kind of a different solution to the scaling problem, isn't it? I mean, t- talk us through the roots of kind of Dremel and what that did and how that worked and, and how it yeah, approaches so, this in a certain way. So, so I think one thing, you know, what we say internally is that BigQuery is Dremel. Um, because ultimately, when you run a query in BigQuery, it is the Dremel service that handles it for you. Um, now, to, to speak about the history of Dremel, um, for folks who have who've never read the paper that is you know, relatively well-known in database circles, um, you know, Dremel is a system we've been running at Google for about 10 years. Um, it is Google's enterprise data warehouse. Um, at this point, 80% of Googlers use uh, Dremel on a daily basis for, for some task, whether they know it or not. Um, and, uh, and, and effectively, it sort of started with a log processing problem, much, much the way many things in the sort of big data space did. You know, we have had MapReduce for a very long time internally. We had systems like Tenzing, which were built on top of it. Uh, but there was an engineer, Sergey Melnik, who, who was working in the Pacific Northwest. And he was thinking about, well, we have all these log files and they're, you know, they're structured. They're, you know, in, in some senses, sort of complex objects. The lingua franca inside Google is a protocol buffer, which is, you know, much like a, you know, binary JSON object. Um, and he was thinking, you know, it would be really great if we had a better way to analyze some of these logs 
was faster and it was maybe sort of sequel oriented. And there were other sequel systems within Google at the time. But he and he started it was started as basically a twenty percent project, and he started to play with it a little bit. It got some traction and it attracted some more engineers. And 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 over the course of, of a couple of years, it really it really gained a lot of traction within within the company because it was easy to use. It was exceptionally fast. It was very good at aggregations. It was very good at scans. Um, you know, over time, again, there were decisions made like, wow, we should maybe make it so that this is the data warehouse for the entire the company. And that's very much what has happened. Um, now, this this has caused a, caused a few things to happen in sort of the evolution of what BigQuery was when it, it debuted about six years ago and what it has been over the last several years. And and a couple of those things are, one, uh, a tremendous focus on, on making it easy to access data um, such that, you know, we, I think you and I both know that moving data around, particularly, you know, on network systems is, is, you know, is death to performance, right? It is, it is challenging to have to say, oh, I've got to copy this data over there. And then once it's materialized, I got to read it again. And, you know, moving data around is, is slow death. Um, and so, you know, within Google, we've certainly created a culture in which as long as you have the right authorizations to read data, um, you can read what you need to read, right? Um, obviously there's security and there's privacy filters that are top of these things. But if I need to go in and read a, a set of data and I have off to read it, I can just go and query it. And that's just how it works. And if I need to share some stuff with someone else, I can just share it and they have rights to it, but then I have to copy data around. And, and this, this has allowed us to centralize the sets of data on which we, we analyze things and then allow us to have a common base of reference. Um, and at the same time, it's really allowed us to involve more and more people within the company in the business of analyzing data to make good decisions. So that was, that was a hallmark of how Dremel itself evolved. Um, and it's a thing that's, that we've exposed very much as a hallmark within BigQuery as well. Sharing access to tables and data sets is, is super lightweight, costs nothing, and, and promotes more and more sharing. Um, the, other, the other thing that, that really sort of began with, with Dremel is because our logs were so often stored in, in you know, sort of structured, nested formats. Um, the 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 engine first optimized for that and became very very good at handling complex objects as opposed to simple record oriented things and so we'd have columnar structures the original file type we used was called columnio um, up in the Dremel paper um, and it was very good at handling columnar data so it was fast for analytical workloads and then nested columnar data now what this what this meant though is when BigQuery debuted several years ago. Um, it, it looked very much like Dremel in, in the sense that it was very, very good at, at massively parallel scans and filters and aggregations, and it did very well with this sort of nested complex data. Um, but it was harder at the time to, to bring, say, uh, you know, a third, fourth, fifth normal form data model to the system and perform as well as it could. Um, one of the areas of sort of major, major investment for us over the last several years has been making the system equally well prepared to handle both the sort of nested complex data, which in which you can represent relations, but you have in fact, you know, denormalized the data on disk. Um, and being able to say, hey, pick up your pick up your third normal form data, you know, data model, put it in here, and you know, multi-stage joins will perform well. Right. You can you, you can handle problems of bitemporality. You can handle problems of, of slowly moving dimensions in the same way that we have all sort of learned to in good data models. And so there's an interesting, I think there's an interesting evolution there in terms of with Dremel, we started by solving a Google problem for, for Google. 
And, and as BigQuery allowed Dremel to meet users in the rest of the world, we realized there was a whole other set of valid use cases that we needed to, to enhance our ability to, to handle. And it's, it's become both the language level and the execution level, it's become a real obsession with us to handle those workloads as well as we've handled, you know, classically Googly workloads. Yeah, exactly. I mean, to the point where I've I've been using it just as a replacement for a relational database in some respects, building out small tables, big tables, and so on. And it's only at certain points that you start to realize this is different to a relational database. And I'd like to get onto that a little bit later with the kind of data modeling side as well, because I think how how one thing I was interested to get from you in this talk is is kind of how do you aim your design at the moment? How do you, know, do you aim for for denormalized tables, do you kind of build it however you want to? It'd be quite good to cover that later on and try and get, I suppose, state of the art really from you on that, which would be interesting. Yeah, absolutely. But, okay. And I think it's, it's a good point. It's a good point to cover just because I think yeah. there can be a lot of confusion around it, particularly mm. when when presented with present, when presented with a new option for data modeling. It's not mm. it's not always clear whether or not you should take it or not. Yeah, exactly. So, so something I wanted to talk about was so the Dremel engine, which is the obviously the query engine behind what you're doing there. Um, obviously, there are a lot there are a lot of SQL on Hadoop engines. We talked about these before that that claim to kind of be able to support sort of thousands of servers, lots and lots of data, and so on. Um, but reading through the Dremel paper, the way that the particular way that that the Dremel used to it splits the work amongst the servers, it puts columns in different nodes, and so on. What what was the innovation that Google had there that made that meant you can scale far beyond other solutions? for this? Well, I mean, I think it's in, in some senses, it's twofold, right? I, one of the things we talked about last September, and, and I, I maintain that this is true, is that part of the reason that Dremel is as powerful as it is, is because it relies on Google's infrastructure. It relies on networking. It relies on our vast fleet of servers, which means that, you know, even, even if you were to take the code for Dremel and deploy it, you know, within someone else's data center, it likely wouldn't perform as well because it, it gains tremendous advantage from our size and scale. Yes. Um, and is that other, is that Jupiter and Borg? I remember reading the paper that that is that, is that what you call them your, your network and so, your sort of things. Yeah, so Borg is our Borg is our container system. Um, so you know Kubernetes has gained a lot of popularity in, in the last couple of years, and and Kubernetes you can think of as sort of a, an evolution in container technology, sort of descendant from Borg. Um, Borg is the container infrastructure that that is most commonly used inside Google. Um, and, and so early containerization helped us quite a lot. It allows us to have you know, very light worker processes that are able to do very powerful things and, and allow us to, to, again, operate clusters that are massive. Um, Jupyter is, is the networking uh, system that we have, we have published on and we have talked about. Um, and, and yeah, Jupyter has a phenomenal capacity. Uh, we, don't, we don't very often talk publicly about our, our internal network bandwidths. There, there was a there's a paper Jupiter Rising in which we discuss it. Um, there are there was a paper YouTube released, I believe, last year in which you can infer some things. Um, what we have last publicly said is that our bisect is about a petabit. Um, our a network bisect of a petabit within our fleet effectively means all machines can communicate with all other machines at 10 gigs a second. And and and, and that's and that that's pretty tremendous, and it allows us. It allows us an ability to think about storage and compute in a fully separate fashion. I think, you know, I think as you and I were both sort of exploring the, the Hadoop world and MapReduce, there, there was this there was this notion, and it's a, it's an entirely reasonable notion that, you know, the data is too big, so move the work to the data. Um, entirely entirely true until you reach a point at which network bandwidths are fast enough 
that even if the storage and the compute are in separate racks, they are fast, they are connected in such a way that they are fast enough to treat as if they were local, right? And if they reach that level of speed, then all of a sudden you get this really interesting ability to sort of say, make your storage decision in the way that you choose to, make your compute decision in the way that you choose to, and you can optimize for both independently. Um, the, the the other thing the other thing I would say about about the query engine and, and its difference to things like SQL and Hadoop uh, is specifically that phrase SQL on Hadoop um, and I think we've seen this in that space right we look at you know we look at Hive and things that actually use the original Hadoop MapReduce engine to process things and I think we all know that a lot of that stuff while powerful could end up being wickedly slow. Um, now when we look at things like Impala. Um, you know, we look at things like Presto. These engines have been built to sort of remove the sort of reliance on the MapReduce execution engine. Um, now, Dremel was never built on top of MapReduce inside Google. Um, there were other systems like Tenzing that did that. Um, part of what made Dremel really powerful in, in its early days was the fact it was not built on MapReduce. And, and you know, having not, not inherited a legacy of, of that particular piece of programming uh, or that particular program, pro programming model has probably allowed us to move very quickly um, and to continue to refine stuff. Um, but yeah, I think when you compare it to other SQL and Hadoop solutions, or even the things I think that are very good in the market right now, Presto and and things like that, there's still a fundamental, there's still a fundamental question of, you know, the scale and infrastructural quality is a thing that is very difficult to replicate. Mm, exactly exactly so i mean the, the, the theme of this podcast to me really was about was to introduce this to the world of to the world of people who mainly do data warehousing at the moment and one of the things that i, I want to get onto data design in the moment and data modeling but one last thing on this this kind of area is one of the things again that i i noticed as i came into the world of people using this all the time was actually equally as important is the fact that the etl and the kind of all the messaging and stuff around it scales as well at the same time so if you are mm -hmm. going to design a system that is going to rely on BigQuery and its ability to kind of handle bursty processing and so on the actual fact that you know data data flow and pub sub scales at the same way that's massively important isn't it it is it's and we we think that you know as as organizations if you deal with bursty data volumes if you deal with things in which you need to be cost optimized right things like data flow and pub sub can really help manage that but at the same time, you know, I think one of the things I'm noticing is that, you know, known players in the ETL space are are realizing that BigQuery is uh, a valuable and important target. And so, I mean, I think, you know, things I've seen recently from Informatica and particularly Informatica Cloud, like I'm very impressed with their their treatment of BigQuery and, and their interest in understanding how to how to model data well within transforms and, and things of that nature. So I think I think it's nice because you get you, you get the, the you get the ability to say you know I have an ETL tool I love my ETL tool and you can come and use BigQuery but you can also say well if I'm rethinking what the data warehouse is maybe I need to rethink what ETL is right and if I if I want to do that do it in a similarly sort of serverless pattern and I want to do it in a way that is simple and straightforward for me from an execution standpoint you know data flow cloud data prep pub sub all of these things kind of allow you to do that as well and that's an that's a that's an interesting topic in itself really i mean i think certainly i mean i had this conversation with with, with a variety of people really kind of maxine boucham in and, and and kind of gwen shapiro and so on about how etl is different in these kind of situations and i, I suppose one one aspect of that discussion is whether you know data engineering now for example has changed etl forever in a certain way but also 
there's the whole kind of uh, you know pipeline-based processing as well. I must admit, one of the things that I've found, I suppose, more daunting coming into this world is having to do ETL through things like PubSub and Dataflow. You know, coming from the world of kind of ETL tools and so on, it's different, really. It's conceptually different. I think I will I will say. I mean, I think we look at things like Cloud Dataflow and, and Apache Beam, and they're conceptually different. And that means that as they as they are sort of making their way into the world, they are still very programmer centric, right? I think for, for you and I, you know, we, we might gulp a bit, but like we can open up our text editor and we can write a job and we can we can make that go. Um, as as much as it was, you know, in in the days in which you know our ETL processes were were largely you know either bash scripted or, or written in another programming language. Um, the tooling is, I think we're, we're at the very early days of tooling on these kinds of platforms, right? Um, these kinds of concepts. I think data prep is an interesting, an interesting initial example of what does it look like when a tool begins to deal with these, with these new paradigms uh, as, as they reflect ETL or ELT or, or whatever data engineering is, is ultimately turning into. Mm. Mm, exactly. Well, let, let's get on to the, the, the main topic I want to talk to you about, which is data modeling. And so, um, so you, you come from a background, you've worked at Oracle before, both of us have worked in data warehousing and so on. And we're very well kind of versed in this idea of, of, of kind of, you know, in a transactional system, you build things normalized in a data warehouse, you have facts and dimensions and so on. And, and as you said earlier on, the work you've been doing with BigQuery the last few years is such that actually you can model things out in largely the same way you do before. Except, and I, I tweeted this recently, except at certain points when you have to consider the way that kind of BigQuery stores data and so on. You know, what, Dan, what, as a starter, what's your initial kind of high level guidance to people about who are coming from the data warehouse world and are building tables and, and structures in BigQuery? What do you generally advise them at the start? Well, you know, I, I, it, it, it's in many ways, I think, the reverse of the, you know, the, the, the sort of old sort of snippy thing to say, which was, you know, normalize till it hurts, denormalize till it works. I mean, I feel like with most, most data warehouses, that's what you ended up doing. Um, and, and, you know, my advice to people thinking about migrating to BigQuery or thinking about, well, should I set up a new data warehouse on, on BigQuery? If your data model well represents your business, if it, because again, the data model in many cases is designed to reflect reality, right? The reality of your business, the reality of your operations. If that data model is, you have strong belief in it, you have strong reliance on it, um, and you're not looking for some excuse to go and re-architect, um, I always advise people to try and bring it whole cloth. Um, you know, if, if, you have, if you have put in the effort and time into thinking about your data in a fifth normal form, you know, it's worth bringing it and understanding, understanding where there may be performance challenges. Um, and, and where there are things in which the, the modeling itself is actually far more important than the performance itself, right? I mean, I think classic things people, they, you know, sort of point at slowly changing dimensions is, is one of everybody's favorite bugaboos. Like it is, if you have that, that reflects something about your business, which is important. And that is a thing that you should probably treat in a way that is important to your business. Um, now, as you begin to sort of reach a point where like, I need to consider optimization, what are the ways in which I denormalize? Do it, is denormalization the only path? Um, one of the things, particularly if we, you know, when I talk to, to organizations that are coming from running very large Teradata, Netiza, Oracle warehouses, is, you know, often I think, you know, you and I would experience this as well as ad hoc analysts. Like I might write a query that I would fire off and because of its priority and because of what it was doing, I kind of expected it to take a day or two. Um, and, you know, nobody liked running that query, but if that's how you had to run it, that's how you had to run it. Um, 
oftentimes I challenge people who write queries of that sort in a traditional EDW when they come to BigQuery to, to think about modularization, to think about, well, I know you have this one massive query which does this and you're used to used to it's taking 48 hours to run. Can you think about decomposing it, materializing intermediate in intermediate steps for two reasons? One, because storage is cheap and simple, it's very, very easy to say, well, you know, I only really need to run the last, you know, the last subquery there, right? Or I, you know, I can run all of these with clauses first and iterate on that on that final query that I'm interested in, in, in a way that would allow me more flexibility as an analyst um, and ultimately might end up being more performant. Um, that's, that's one thing, right? So this notion of like, well, can you, can you take that big query and, and maybe think about breaking it down into modules? And in part, could some of those modules help your collaborators, right? If, if I have four with clauses in my query and then the query itself, you know, Mark, do you maybe find value in two of those with clauses? Like maybe I should just materialize them. Maybe, maybe that's a thing to do, right? Once I've figured it out, maybe I should just go ahead and materialize that for you. Um, but then with, you know, with the actual, when we get down to, should I actually denormalize? Um, you know, we, when we look at it, we think there are sort of two approaches to denormalization. There's classic big data denormalization where I flatten the whole table and I get a, a, a massive number of columns. Um, and that is a totally valid way to denormalize. We, we support it. We like it. We see a lot of it, particularly when we find people coming to BigQuery from Hadoop and Hive, for example. Um, now, obviously, you know, data people, oh, data duplication. Well, data duplication, when we think about how COD defined it or talked about it, right, there were two motivations, right? One was obviously you didn't want to have duplicate records for purposes of logical consistency and, and correct results. Um, but the other challenge that sort of COD was addressing there is the fact that, you know, at the time, right, we're talking, you know, in the 70s, um, you know, bytes were very expensive, right? Bytes persistent media were incredibly expensive and bytes of persistent media are incredibly inexpensive now. And so when we think about sort of a, you know, just a, a flattening denormalization, I think we can remove, at least in BigQuery, we can remove the notion that like, oh, it's going to be very costly to do it from a, from a billing perspective. Um, I think what we have to ask ourselves is, is that going to make it easier for us to analyze data is it going to make it easier for everyone to find the columns that they need? Is it going to make it easier for you to write your query? And are we going to maintain correct results? Right? We can think about it just in terms of like, what is the, what is the answer we're pursuing? Is it easier to get to it? Is it correct? Um, the other piece, and I think you probably experimented with this, just knowing your penchant for digging into these things, is this notion of nested data and, and repeated things. Um, and I think, you know, the, the, I, in my mind, the brilliant twist on it is that it, it, it can be the best of both worlds from a performance perspective, which is to say, I can maintain a denormalized structure on disk, which means that my queries will be very performant. However, when you, you know, if you take advantage of a nested data structure, you can effectively represent one to many relationships inside a single table. And, and so there are certain situations in which that's actually quite nice, right? If I have, you know, a set of, if I have a dimension that is only ever joined with one fact table, and it's a relatively small dimension, I mean, relatively it could be, you know, many, many, many rows. Um, unless that dimension is updated quite often, there's very little need for it to be a separate table. I could preserve the one-to-many relationship because it's important to the way I think about my problem. It's important to the way I think about my business by just making it an array inside the fact table.
Yeah, and, uh, and, that, and that's an, that's an interesting topic, isn't it? I mean, that that completely threw me actually. But and I think it's one of those things that appears to be a little bit daunting. And also, also, I guess coming from the relational world, you had this concept of nested structures, but they were kind of quite inefficient, really. I mean, do, do, yeah. maybe just explain what, what. So when we talk about a nested repeating structure, and you mentioned kind of uh, you know Colomio and and Colossus and so on earlier on. What, what why is it particularly that nested structures? What are they first of all, and why is it they're particularly kind of aligned with how BigQuery works? Sure. Well, I think it's it's fair to talk about sort of the two two classes of these things, or maybe three classes of these things: nested structures, repeated structures, and nested re- repeated nested structures. Um, you know, a nested a nested structure is you know it, it's simply like saying you know I have a I have a column I have a I have a, a sales table and I have a column which has within it subfields. Right. Um, you know, classic example might be if I'm you know a sales table and I collected you know your phone number from the sort of you know shop. Thing. I might actually break that into phone number is the column name, but within phone number, I have phone number dot area code, phone number dot number, right? Um, now, in this sense, it's just it's just nesting. It's just a it's just a level of breakdown um, within within that column. And so when we store that on disk, you know, there is a broader column, which is the phone number column. And then within that, we are storing effectively separate columns for both the area code of the record and the, the number itself. Now, from a query perspective, I think this is actually very easy to reason about because I effectively just use dot notation to get the things inside the nested structure. Now, things get a bit more, uh, I think, mentally challenging, at least for me, coming from the traditional RDBMS world. When you think about a, a, a repeated structure, which is to say, uh, you know, a silly example of something like cities lived in. If there's, a, there's a user profile table or something like that. And I have, you know, cities lived and I've lived in more cities than I care to name. Um, and so rather than having a separate table, which was, you know, ID, you know, city lived, ID, city lived, I could instead have attached to that that table of user information, I can have from my row an array of the cities I lived in, you know, Phoenix, Los Angeles, Chicago, San Francisco, so on and so forth. Um, now, this is this is really powerful because I've saved myself having to go out and sort of you know, join with a table. Um, but there is this sort of question of how do we operate on arrays in SQL, which is which is interesting because I think, you know, the, there have been discussions about it in ANSI. There are thoughts about it. It's never been codified as this is the way to do it. Um, and, and we've taken great pains, particularly in our, in our sort of standard SQL dialect, to try and find the most ANSI-like way to do this that we, we believe is important. But it can, there's a bit of mental reasoning. So if I need every value of that array, I have to unnest the array. But what does it mean to unnest it? Um, well, effectively, you know, the, the way to handle this is is to do what some people call a lateral join or or a limited cross join, right? So if I want to want to take every city I lived lived in and and get a row for each of those cities plus my user information, effectively what I need to do is do a cross join between the one row, which is my user information, and the array values itself. Now, nobody likes a cross join, right? It always sounds scary. But if it's a cross-join between one thing in and then a limited array, it's actually a very efficient operation, and, and it can all be done locally, right? So if we think about not wanting to spread data or spread processing around across multiple workers within a distributed system, because it's effectively all local within the, the bytes I've already read into memory, I can just do it very, very quickly in memory as I'm executing, 
and move on. And so even though I might write cross-join, right, I'm, I'm actually doing something that's much more efficient than a real cross-join. Um, so that's one thing. Um, the, the, the thing that, the thing I think can, can really challenge users, but is also in many ways the most powerful thing is if I can have an array and if I can have a nested object, which has sort of subfields, there is nothing which prevents me from having an array of nested objects, right? And this is how we get to the notion of having a truly one-to-many relationship represented inside a table. If that, you know, if that city's lived table that I talked about had many columns, there's no reason that those columns couldn't each become parts of a nested structure and I could have an array for every element that corresponded to my user ID. Um, powerful because I've captured that relationship, right? Because I have everything that was in that dimension table collapsed to an array of these objects um, already attached to the record it's most likely to be joined with. Um, powerful in that that, that that relationship is still there. Powerful because, again, when I'm processing it, I'm not having to necessarily deal with a join that might move data between machines that might require network, all of these sorts of things, because it's all right there when I, when I have the data in memory to operate on. Um, but challenging, and I think this is a thing we think quite a lot about because we 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 believe very strongly in the in the SQL that we've produced, particularly for for our standard SQL dialect. But we do we do realize that it is it is not obvious to a lot of people yeah. Yeah. how to write good query against those sorts of structures. Well, it's interesting. I mean, I think that, that yeah, there were two there were two routes I had coming into this particular kind of topic. Really, was you know, in the place I'm working at the moment, we had a situation where we were trying to join two big tables together, and we suddenly hit this issue where. Yeah, with BigQuery, 99% of the time, you don't need to think about how the data is stored. But then suddenly, at this point, we had to. We had to think about what is the optimal way to store you know, the data from two tables in such a way that we can return uh, values back, you know, return results back without kind of running out of resources. And I had the same thing with something I was doing at home as well, taking a couple of your, couple of your um, sample tables together. And again, it all worked. When you scan one table, filter against it, aggregate, it works fine. Two massive tables, and we hit this kind of, I suppose, kind of inherent issue you get with any kind kind of like distributed system um, and as you say it was it was quite conceptually hard to think about but actually in the end it, it wasn't that difficult really and and you've got fairly standard things in SQL where you can do you know you can do a, a, an unnest join in, in SQL but the thing for me that was also interesting was Looker the partner tool that I work with has support for these in, as part of its kind of metadata modeling area and we can just present it back out to the users in the end as a normal kind of like join. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, the things the things where we think about in this space, you know, we're we're working we're working to really improve a lot of the documentation around mm. this so that people can see more examples of how that, to that do was this. hard. That was hard actually, getting a working example there. That was the hardest bit, but once you've worked it out, it was easy. Yeah, yeah. Well, and that's and, and one of the things we're trying to do is just, you know, we sat down and we wrote a bunch of different kinds of examples so that we can actually really walk people through more of the things that they might want to try and do. And and I think, you know, we bubbling back up to your sort of top level question, like what should people think about when designing for, for, for BigQuery or data modeling for BigQuery, one of the things I really stress is actually who the end consumer is going to be. Uh, because, you know, you manage to, 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 you know, reason your way through how to write good array SQL um, and do the same thing. I have people on my, on, on my team who are not engineers who probably can't. And so the question I ask myself is, is this something where everyone who's going to access it can write the array SQL and it's obvious? If it's not, can I expose a view for them? And is that view a reasonable way to, to pass things on? And then the, the sort of further downstream piece of it, and I think, you know, Looker's an exceptional example of this, is working with 
you know, partners and tool providers to, to talk to them through the why of this and help them make good decisions around it. And, and I think Looker has been great in terms of, of jumping on board and, and seeing the value of it and really working towards it. And particularly with BI partners, we're working to make sure that they understand, yes, it's probably the simplest thing to, to simply plug in through a driver and treat us like in a warehouse, but you'll get outsized advantage if you if you talk with us a little bit about how should you think about these kinds of structures because you might be able to pro- provide more scalable BI solutions to your users if you went this way. Okay. Okay. So uh, on that topic, I mean, one of the things about big queries is no indexes, uh, and that's kind of that that's obviously massively useful. But is there a purpose in doing things like pre-summarization of data and summary tables and so on within big query? Do you see that happening, or is it kind yeah, of pointless? Yeah, I, I think people do it quite a lot. I think one of the things we think about is you know because we know people do things like summary tables. Are are there things we can do in the future to make that faster, simpler, easier? Um, and, and again, I mean, going back to the, the notion of like, you know, if I have a very large query in which, you know, I have a bunch of with clauses, like maybe I sh- I love the with clause. It's my favorite clause. And I may be the only person who feels that way. But, uh, but you know, if I were to materialize it, would that be useful to me and to someone else? Similarly, you know, should I make some summary tables? Is that useful to me and to other people? And I think one of the things I think is really interesting is is the sort of departure from me with my analyst's hat on. I'm using SQL to analyze data to me as uh, as a, a software provider, right? So you know, if you are a SaaS organization, you are trying to build, uh, you know, a, a system that serves analytical data to your users. Um, you know, I think you have to treat the system somewhat differently. You can't just sort of run in and say, like, I'm going to bang out some SQL queries and serve the results directly to users. I think you have to think a little bit more around, well, I have the ability to run massive queries. I have the ability to store and share data of any size very quickly and very cheaply. What are the, what are, what's the hierarchy of, of, of data sets or tables I might need to serve my users the fastest, right? And summary tables are a huge part of that. Hmm. Mm, interesting. So, so what, what about um, partitioning? So, partitioning is, 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 I suppose, the other part of this, really, as well as storing it in an optimal way. Um, partitioning sounds easy. It's, it seems to be a little bit more complicated than I expect. And there's, and there's also, I guess, an issue about how do you go and re, how do you go and repartition tables that actually aren't partitioned now without it costing lots of money and taking, having lots of downtime and so on. And the team back in the office said, when you speak to Dan McClary, ask him about partitioning our tables, because <laughs> I think it's one of those things where it, partitioning is interesting, isn't it? And, and why, why is it important? And why is it sometimes hard to get done in practice on a production system? Well, and in, and in fact, I mean, I think you know, thinking back to my time at Oracle, I mean, partitioning was hard there too, right? They mm. they charged partitioning for for mm. reasons, right? Some of those reasons was not simple. Um, so so our partitioning story today is is evolving, um, and I, I think it actually makes uh, it makes some sense to sort of take a trip back to the past a little bit. Um, so so inside Google um, with Dremel, we didn't support partitioning. It wasn't a thing we did. Um, instead, we we had relied on a concept we called table sharding. Um, and, and this is very much what it sounds like, you know, I can have a number of tables that all have common prefix, but have different suffixes. And in my query, I can, I can choose to operate over a range of suffixes corresponding to a given prefix. So the canonical example would be my logs table underscore, and then some numbers representing the date. And then I could say, oh, well, give me everything, give me every table from the prefix, my logs table within the predicate that satisfies this date range. 
Um, now, BigQuery has reported that from, from, I believe, its outset. And it is, it is a reasonable, if, if not incredible, way to, to manage uh, date-oriented data. Um, however, partitioning ends up being more performant. Um, it ends up being more flexible. It ends up being somewhat more limitless, right? So we, we in fact, have a, a, a limit on the number of, of, of the shards you can access in a, in a single table simply because of metadata burden required to go and sort of fetch. You know, you, you reach a point where you're talking about thousands of shards. It's like that's a lot of metadata I actually have to hold just to satisfy that particular, that particular filter clause. Um, whereas partitioning, you know, in a, in a well-designed partitioning system, you can have as many partitions as you need. Um, now, our, our, first, our first go at this was effectively to, to introduce date, per, date range partitioning because we feel like that is the most common kind of partitioning that you, you see in a system. Um, and I think when we think about the kinds of data that, that really start to hit big data scales, right, whether they are store skew sales combinations or click data or a number of these sorts of things, they're almost always time oriented. Uh, so I think broad agreement, date range partitioning is important. Now, our, our initial foray into this was to, to not modify the data at all and to simply say, we'll keep a pseudo column around, which corresponds to, to the date at, at which this, the date partition to which this lives in. Um, now, in our SQL dialect, you, you access this again through a pseudo column, underscore partition time, which is rather inconvenient. Um, particularly if you had a date field in your records already, because you probably had a date field in your records. Um, and this, this does create a little bit of a mismatch, right? Because you might have a situation in which you say, I have date, date oriented data that I'm loading into the system. I would like you to partition it. But if you don't tell us which pseudo column partition keys they belong to, we might put them all in the same, well, you loaded all of that data today. So that's today's partition, right? Um, we admit that this is silly. Um, the, the workaround the workaround for this today is effectively to address partitions directly, which you can address a partition directly by appending a dollar sign and the, the partition itself to the end of the table. So you can access any particular uh, partition in a load job or a copy or something like that by saying dollar sign and then the partition date. Um, that said, one of the things that, that we, we expect to we expect to be able to, to at least begin testing with with customers is proper date-oriented partitioning in which you give me a date column and we respect that as being the partition time. The sort of more explicit, tell me what the partition key is, we will deal with the partition key. Um, and with that, I mean, I think, you know, speaking to the, the other part of your question, which yeah. is, if I have data that's not partitioned today, yeah. what should I do with it? Um, because that can be un unexpectedly quite hard, I suppose, to do, can't it? You know, you've got a massive table. That table is being loaded into by a stream or something. Actually, to take it offline and repartitioning it is, is quite hard, isn't it? Yeah, it can. I mean, particularly when, particularly if you figure that if you figure that there is no, from our perspective, there is no offline unit table, right? Like, like unlike unlike a system that you you control the storage subsystem for, you control the internals of. You could say we're offlining that table because we have to do a partition maintenance operation. Because BigQuery is service oriented, and because we are we are serverless, there's no way for you to tell me to take a table offline. And from our perspective, we can't take your table offline because you might need it. We have no way of knowing. You might be streaming into us at 10,000 QPS, and that's important. So I can't offline it. Um, and so we want to be very careful about it. Things we've done previously, if you have data that is um, sharded by date, 
we will automatically partition that. There's a there's a, a command in our, our CLI which will partition that automatically for you. It'll put it into a partition table. Um, now, when we get to a point where we can offer our users, you know, proper date-oriented partitions, we'll we'll provide the same feature functionality there from the tool. Um, but we'll also have to find a way to very closely or very simply allow you to point us at a table and say, "This is not partitioned. I need a partitioned table. This is the partition key." Um, and making that something that that's both simple to do and and cost effective is very important because I think the the challenge right now is if you were to have a table like that and say I need to go and write it into individual partitions, you are unfortunately going to run into a situation which you have to run many queries to pull out the partitions themselves and insert them into the thing. And you know you you can optimize it as much as you can, but but there is a there is a, a known limit in terms yes. of the number of you have to run yes exactly exactly so um so last thing i want to ask you actually because i'm conscious of time for you um so we, we, so obviously BigQuery for us has been fantastic in this project and we're getting kind of you know consistently good response times and, and and so on and so forth but there still comes a point when someone says but even that's too slow sometimes and and you know you and i remember the days of kind of relational world and oracle and olap and so on where people were getting to expect response times in the kind of sub seconds and there are technologies out there like for example druid for example that people are using to create this kind of like or I suppose intermediate cache layer to make even those queries kind of run fast you I suppose what's your sort of thoughts on that and is that something that you guys are thinking about doing for BigQuery or is this a sort of thing that's not part of your agenda you know what's your thoughts on that really well so I guess the, my my answer is somewhat twofold right and the on the you know the, the first part of it is, yes, we see the demand from BI tools, from application providers for subsecondary. Um, I think the question we ask ourselves is, is BigQuery, is BigQuery the right tool to do that? Or are there other better approaches that would help you optimize costs, simplify use, things like that? Um, so in terms of building a query cache layer, um, there are other products within Google that do this, say Data Studio, the BI tool, builds itself a cache layer for, for certain result sets, and that's how it's able to maintain interactive speeds. Um, you know, for a, you know, things like Druid or maintaining a Redis store or maintaining an RDBMS that actually has these data, this data loaded hot memory for, for certain queries, entirely valid and, and we generally recommend. One of the, one of the things we're very excited about is uh, you know, the notion of our integration with systems like Bigtable, um, you know, things like potentially integrating with Cloud Spanner, um, such that users can say, if I have something that's very transactional or I have something that's more serving oriented, um, there will be a GCP database um, who, you know, a GCP database which is, is going to be appropriate for that, that will be queryable by BigQuery. Right, whether whether it is today, like in the case of, of Cloud Bigtable, or in the case of something like Cloud Spanner, which we expect to have happen at some point, um, we think again, you, you shouldn't have to say, "Well, I need BigQuery to do it." It should instead be a situation of, "What is the optimal system for me to do this based on what my engineers need, what my end users need?" Um, and so, I mean, I think yeah, we see we see Druid pop up. We we see people using things like Cloud Bigtable for this. Um, we see you know we see users building their own caches in ways that are are important to the way they operate. Uh, and I think those are they are they are things we are interested in. But I think in the way we think about our roadmap, our our interest is not necessarily in terms of providing sort of here is the caching layer, uh, but instead instead sort of focusing on on two things. One, 
how do we make the kinds of queries for, for which this is, is likely much faster with you having to say something explicit? Um, you know, if, if this is obviously something that's getting run a lot by, by the customers of your SaaS application, if this is obviously something everyone in your org hits through a BI tool, how do we make it faster for you without you having to do anything? Um, does that mean we change our, our layout on disk? Does that mean we you know, change the way we process the data? Does that mean that we, we investigate in caching on our own? All on the table, all things we're really interested in. We want to make sure that it's, it's as simple and as transparent as a lot of the other things in the system. Um, but then the other piece of it is making sure that whether it's, you know, a, a third party caching layer or another GCP database that there's really good interoperability between the two, because there's no reason you should have to take our word for it. Uh, right. And I think we're, we're, we really are, we want to make sure that people choose the tools that are best for them, whether they are our tools or not. Okay. Okay. The fantastic Dan. Well, look, it's been great speaking to you. Um, so, just just to, just to remind anybody on the on the on the on the on the call, where do people find out about what you're what you're working with? Where do where do people find out about um, you know, BigQuery and Google Power Platform and 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 so on? Really? Oh, sure. The um, the I mean the, the so it's Google. The, yeah. <laughs> really, is BigQuery.cloud.google.com, and uh, that will actually take you directly to BigQuery. Um, you know, one of the things, one of the, the you know silly things I like to do is when you know showing showing BigQuery to users, I say, oh well, I'm going to go ahead and spin up an instance of BigQuery. You just mm. you go to BigQuery.cloud.google.com and it's there. It's it's there. The web UI is there. Play with it. Kick up, kick your tires with it. Give it a try. Um, read the documentation. Try the editor. Um, and we have a host of other tools, but like that's the best way to find out, right? Is just go and play. Fantastic. And remember, to just to just to plug it because I mentioned earlier in the in the discussion that you know we believe strongly in you know, free trials to enable people to learn. Um, BigQuery gives you a terabyte of analysis every month for free and 10 gigabytes of storage. So you can put data in there, you can query data, and there's no impact to you. I mean, effectively, as a developer at home, it's free, you know, and and, and, uh, and that's just fantastic, really. I mean, you have, to, you have to worry about the cost of it. It just works. And obviously, at a commercial level, you've got to pay for it and so on. But that was quite an inspired thing, really. So um, one other last thing is like, there's a good video from the last Google Next, I think, in San Francisco that you and uh, Daniel Minstead as well about this topic mm -hmm. as well. Is that correct? That's right. And there's another there's another one from from Next as well with uh, Jordan Tigani, who who runs our engineering team, which I think is really for people who really want to know about the, the nuts and bolts and the internal parts of our performance. It's a really great deep dive on some of the stuff that we do in the engine that is, I think, interesting and meaningful to people who, who just want to geek out on like, well, what does this what does a big distributed system like that do at Google? Good. Excellent. That's really good. Well, I'll let you go now. It's been great having you on the show again. And uh, thanks very much. And uh, take care, Dan. All right. Thanks very much, Mark. I, I really enjoyed it.